The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Jesus is Better Than. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Well, good morning, church. Thank you so much for letting me be here. I'm super excited to be here. I can't believe that it has been about a year and a half since you all started supporting me in Heights Church. And it's probably been about a year, I guess, since I've been here and had the opportunity to preach. But we've sent you all some some update videos and things of that sort. And so I just want to say thank you. Um, and, and I'm honored to be here for, for numerous reasons. Um, one, because we talk a lot about church planting in our networks and within our churches. And so it's great for me to come. And, and as I was talking with Sam about just for you as a people to see that, that I'm a real person, like I exist, I have a family, I have two kids, um, a mortgage, I have all the very similar things to many of you. I, I bleed as you bleed, I breathe as you breathe, and, and, and I'm a real person. And, and we were down there and God is allowing us right outside of St. Louis to do some real work. And so we truly believe um, that we are an extension of the greater Sacred City community. Um, I'm on your city account. When there's prayer requests, we pray for you. When there's events, our leaders actually like we pray for you. We pray for your elders. Um, and so we are just excited and honored. And I am personally just humbled um, to be able to preach God's word. And as Sam said, yeah, we, I want to share some numbers. We don't talk about numbers at all in our church, but this is something that you all can, can kind of relate to. And so we launched with 35 people um, in March, uh, March 15th of last year. And it got God has just blessed us with exponential growth in our missional communities. And so we had two when we started. Um, we have four now. Um, and we're actually about to launch three more in the next three months. And, and so we've went from 35 people in one. Some of you have been there in that, in that house with 30 people. Um, and now to about 120 people um, in our missional communities, which is just crazy. I mean, if you're new to Sacred City, this is kind of foreign. And I apologize if you're a guest. Um, stick around and you'll, you'll get it all figured out. Um, but in, on average, we only have about 70 or 80 people in our gathering, um, but again, about 120 regularly all throughout the week in our homes and, and just within our community. And so I just want to, I share that stuff. We got to baptize 15 people. So like one person a month since we launched, if you kind of think about it like that. And, and so it's been just the coolest thing to see people obviously come to faith in Jesus. That's the point of church planting, right? And, and also to see Christians come in who thought they were Christians and learn they were just kind of checking some boxes and didn't actually know the gospel. And, and then people that have come faithfully that, that just live on mission with us as you all are. And so um, again, just super humbled and honored to be here. The second thing I want to share is that that I know I'm not Justin Dean. Um, I'm, I'm very different from Pastor Justin Dean. I call him JD. Like, he, fight, he fought in a cage. Like, I would rather give you a hug, you know? And so um, <laughs> we're just different guy, different men. God's wired us differently. Um, but I just want to say this. Like, I know I'm not your pastor, um, but it would be my honor to stand up here and just shepherd your hearts for the next 40 minutes. And in that, I'm going to preach about 20 minutes shorter than he usually does. So <laughs> amen, amen. Okay, and so I'm also from a church that talks to me. So if I say something like, amen, if you could just respond, amen. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. So that would be the cue. Or if I'm like, if I say, are you with me? Say, yeah. If you could just say, yeah, that'll just make me feel. We're from the South, you know, so we, we talk too much, obviously. So let me, uh, let me just pray. Um, let me pray for you. If you could continue to pray for us in the St. Louis Metro East. This is the, the last thing I'll say. There's 700,000 people in our um, in our community down there, uh, 80% of them claim to not believe the gospel. So 500,000 people would say they have no religious affiliation. So here's the, let me put this a different way. In the St. Louis Metro East, we are considered an unreached populace, like an unreached. You don't have to send someone, like you send someone to Africa to an unreached people group, 
St. Louis Metro East is an unreached people group. Just kind of wrap your minds around that. So keep praying for us as we're down there um, trying to do the work that God has, has called us to do. Let me pray one more time just for me, for you guys, and even for Sam. God, I thank you so much for your word. Um, I pray, God, that we would dive into this just headstrong and grow and learn together as a family. I pray that your spirit would be here as Sam. So pray, God, we have notes in, I have notes in front of me, but take them. God, I pray that your spirit would do as he promises, God, that he would minister to the hearts by the power and work of your son and to your glorious fame to God the Father. And so we pray all this. I pray a continued blessing over Sacred City. I can't even talk uh, of all the, the great things they've sent us, God, financially and, and wisdom and, and leadership and people. It's just been a blessing, God. I thank you. I give you all the praise and all the glory. Pray all this in your name, all God's people said. Amen. All right, so when I was writing the sermon, I was taking a few guys through a book written by Darren Patrick, who's the vice president of our church planning network, and it's called Dude's Guide uh, to Manhood. Any of you guys read this, Dude's Guide to Manhood? It's a, it's a decent book to read, but in that book, he, he talks about this TV series that's out called Mad Men. Let me see some hands. Anyone seen Mad Men? Okay, just a couple of us in the room, us and some crickets, and so there's a show out called Mad Men. And it's really great. It's based um, basically in the 1960s, and there's this alpha male in there whose name is, let me get his name right, yeah, Don Draper. And he's basically struggling to stay on top in one of the most well-known advertising term, um, firms in, on Madison Avenue in New York. And so basically this man has everything he could ever want, need, desire. And his whole goal essentially in life as a marketing man is to sell discontentment. Like his whole goal and purpose is to sell, you need more. You require more. If you want to be happy, then you need to seek out more. And that's essentially what he gets paid to do. The only problem is that Mr. Draper has fallen prey to his own marketing scheme. And so if you watch the show, um, he has to lead a double life. He has a beautiful wife, two kids, um, lives in the suburbans, but he also um, lives in suburbia, but he also um, leads a double life where he has a mistress. He's a hardcore alcoholic. He's constantly lying and trying to get himself out of whatever predicament that he might be in. And so he has believed his own marketing scheme. And the problem with Mr. Draper, the problem with Don in the, the story, in the, in the show, isn't that he needs more. He has plenty, he has more than he could ever handle. I think his problem is that he's short-sighted. And in that, he has failed to actually take a step back and look at his life and see everything that he actually has before him. He is short-sighted in the way he views the world. And so at Heights Church, our church, I like to give a big idea, one tweetable sentence to sum up the whole sermon. So you might be like, why are you going to preach for 40 minutes if you can do it in one sentence? But here's my big idea for the whole sermon as we're talking about discontentment. Discontentment is a result of short-sightedness. If you're a note taker, that's for you. Discontentment is a result of short-sightedness. It is a product of short-sightedness. And in that, I mean, it is a failure for us as the believer to raise our gaze from this world and to fix our eyes on the world that is to come, to fix our eyes on the Messiah that is to come and the inheritance that he is wielding for us and keeping for us in the kingdom of heaven by the power of his spirit. The world which is to come, which is a world where discontentment is doomed. 
and it will exist no more. Because the reality, church, is that we are completely content with our discontentment. He goes with me. Like we're completely satisfied with our dissatisfaction. We find comfort in our discomfort. We're just used to it. Right? Satan is a mad man and he's a master marketer. And the world has sold us on discontentment and we have bought the whole lot of it. Keep offering me more is what we would scream. And we are radically satisfied with never actually being satisfied. C.S. Lewis has this quote and he says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, right? If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And discontentment comes when we fail to stand on our tiptoes in eager anticipation for the coming king. It is a result of short-sightedness. And so 1 Corinthians 7, there's a lot in there. And as you all know, I'm sure you all typically go verse by verse. We could spend like two years in 1 Corinthians 7s. It's like 40-something verses, right? I'm not going to be able to do that today. And so I'm going to just hit some things that we read through in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me give you some context for those of you that that weren't here for the year that you all went through 1 Corinthians. Um, You all did go through 1 Corinthians for a year, right? Yeah, okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for interacting with me as well. The right side needs to step up a little bit. And so... We'll learn together. 1 Corinthians 7. Um, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, there's this guy named Paul, right, who's this apostle. He's this church planter. He's a father um, to the church. And, and, just, and in that, really, he's a pastor to his church. And he's writing this letter. And in 1 Corinthians, he's essentially telling them that you need to be content. And so during this time, there was mass persecution of Christians taking place. And I don't mean like someone was mad at you, and so they were on Facebook, and they liked your comment just so they could unlike your comment and then write something underneath it. Or someone else that like went on some liberal site blog and wanted to bash the evangelical world about how we're too intolerant. Like there was mass persecution taking place here in the church of Corinth, and and Paul says, right, he comes out, he's encouraging his church, and he says, as a concession, not as a command, right? Like, here's a good piece of wisdom from your pastor, and then if you have your Bibles out or your app out, verse 8, he says to some interesting things throughout the text. He says, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good that you remain single as I am single, given the present circumstances, I would say in there, within the context. In verse 25, he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And then in 28b, he says, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Bad time to say amen, husbands. (laughs) Some browning points for you. Just keep quiet. What Paul is saying, though, to these folks, as I'm just trying to give you the context here still, is, If you pursue people and objects outside of Jesus first and foremost, it will always lead to discontentment. And it's also very short-sighted of us then to focus on immediate gratification, to focus on immediate fulfillment, immediate satisfaction in our lives. And Paul says in the book of Philippians, he's writing to the church of Philippi, and he says to them, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
from where indeed, for you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Something had happened where they had not been able to reach out to Paul. In verse 11, though, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. All right, Paul's in prison in the book of Philippians. Paul's in prison right into the church of Corinth. And we're not talking about like United States prison system, not to downplay that by any means, but it wasn't three hots in a cot. It was he's chained up to the middle of a rock floor in season and out of season. And Paul says to the church he's writing to, not that I'm speaking of being in need, right? While I'm chained up here, ball and chain outside in a prison, right? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. And so comfort in Christ, as we see here, will not come easily. And it will absolutely not come naturally. But contentment must be pursued, must be studied, and it even must be learned, I think I would say. So let's just see what Paul has for us in the book of 1 Corinthians. There's three points I want to make today, and if you're a note taker, I'll give, you away, give it away to you now. Contentment is a calling. Discontentment is costly. And contentment is a command. Contentment is a calling. Discontentment is costly. And contentment is a command. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about our calling to Christ. Everything in there is about our, our calling, and then in that we should look, to, look forward to the coming king, and that should fill our world vision for everything that we do. And so Paul is saying here that you were dead in your sins and God has called you through Jesus Christ to be in relationship with him. So let me just unpack this a bit for you. All of you are sitting in chairs from what I can tell. Why don't you go ahead and grab the arms of your chairs right there. I can see you. We interact too at Heights Church, so just get used to it for the next little bit. Calling. So Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2, pages 1 and 2, right? Um, God creates everything. He speaks power and something, and nothing becomes something on page 1. He says, this is good. And then he says, but I need, I want, I don't want, I desire to have someone bear my image. So he creates Adam and he says, oh man, this, this thing's going to come undone. He needs someone, right? So he says, it's not suitable for him to be alone. So he creates Eve. And then he looks at creation and he says, this is very good. Like they are in my image. And so he created Adam and Eve to delight in him, to walk with him in the garden. There was perfect peace, balance, shalom. That means there was a, a silent hum, like a, like a melodic silence in the universe during this time. But then we know when we get to page three that all hell breaks loose on earth, right? And, and Adam and Eve rebel against that perfect relationship with God the Father. And God doesn't cower back in the garden, though. He actually pushes forward and, and pursues them and he promises a rescuer. But because of that, well, that sin that we see in Genesis 3, we are now born into sin. We're born into this rebellion. It's not a blow against your moral character. It's just the state of our being. We're born into this original sin. Insert that chair that you're sitting in. I heard a pastor put it like this one day. What would happen, this interaction, what would happen if you literally stayed in that chair forever? You would die. Right, you would die, it would get pretty bad for you. You would start to defecate on yourself. You would not be able to eat. I must really think about, it would be disgusting, right? My wife is a nurse, and I shared a bit of this with, with our church, and, and she said, well, setting that chair would actually be like a patient who gets bed sores. 
And, and it's not that they just get sores, but the chair or that the bed actually begins to get embedded into the back of the patient if they're not flipped, if they don't move around. And so that chair that you're setting in, quite literally, if you were to never get out of that chair, you would actually become a part of that chair. That you're, you would actually grow into that chair and you would have to be ripped out of it because your skin would be embedded into it. Some of your faces are like, like y'all didn't know what you're getting into if I me in today, huh? But that's the reality of the situation. And what, we, and what we call that would be like original sin. Like we're born into that and, and we love it. Like we love that chair, right? Like so I'm saying, grab those handles because you love it. But the reality is that God has called us, right? He has called us out of that chair, and he doesn't just call us, but he cleans us. It's called justification, right? So, so we get pulled out of the chair, and there's no cuts. There's no bruises. There's nothing. He justifies us. He cleans us up, and as if that wasn't enough, he adopts us. He brings us into his family to sit on his lap or sit on the bench next to him and dine with him for eternity, as what's called sons in Romans, as for men and women, that says that we've received the firstborn inheritance of King Jesus Christ for eternity. Like that's what the good father has offered us. He's met our deepest needs in Jesus forever. And we get to just sit next to him and delight in the son and delight in the father. And as if that were not enough, like the story goes on and he sanctifies us, which is really the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And he says, yeah, I've called you out of that mess and I've cleaned you up and I've adopted you, but I've also sanctified you. That means I've, I present you as holy. I'm going to continue to make you holy because of your good actions. No, not because of your good actions. Because of the perfect work of Jesus, I now see you as holy because Jesus is holy. I see you as righteous because Jesus is righteous. I see you as perfect because Jesus Christ is perfect. And so when God the Father looks down on us and we want to run back to the chair because we love it, he doesn't see our depravity. He sees the perfect work of Jesus in our place. Like that's the beauty and scandal of the gospel that we've been invited into. And that's what Paul means whenever he says you've been called. Simply live as you have been Called. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called you. What have you been called to? What is your purpose? What will ultimately bring you the most contentment in life? To simply live as you have been called. First Thessalonians says, God's will is that you would be sanctified. So what have you been called to? Holiness. What has been assigned to you? Holiness. Because of your good works? No. Because Jesus is perfectly holy in your place, and Paul's rule to all the churches is that we would simply pursue understanding what it is that we already are. It's kind of wordy, but Paul's command then is that we would pursue an understanding of what we are, how he already sees us in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we get to do, simply spend our lifetime learning how it is that God sees us and how all of this is worth it. And even understanding just the scandal of the gospel. And here's the deal, Sacred City. When you can finally wrap your mind around the reality that you are who you are because Jesus is who he is, you will be consumed with contentment. And that is what you have been called to. Contentment is a calling. The next bit is discontentment is costly. How many of you have had an iPhone since the iPhone came out? It's loud, sorry. So, I mean, just keep your hands up. I'm, I'm going to just bust all y'all out here. So how many of you had an iPhone since the iPhone? Okay. How many of you had an iPhone 2? 
iPhone 3. Okay, we're getting just a few. iPhone 4. Oh, now they're, yeah, that's when they start to get popular and not cost $500, huh? iPhone 4, iPhone 4S, iPhone 5, iPhone 5C, iPhone 5S, iPhone 6, iPhone 6 Plus. Okay. <laughs> Discontentment is costly, right? Need I say more? Like, I could just go to the next point, right? How many of you have dropped an iPhone, right? And you haven't prayed in, like, three weeks, and you're like, oh, God, if you could please. It's, like, face down, like, if you could please. Just not let it be broken. Like, I will do discontentment. It cost me 150 bones just a few weeks ago. So it's pricey. Discontentment is costly. In verse 18, Paul says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul's going to use this word calling a lot, but here we're going to see that discontentment is costly. So what Paul is saying here, to put it simply, is don't abandon the culture in which you came from. And so whenever you become a Christian, don't try to become something more than what Jesus already placed upon you, which is his identity in you and not your identity in the world. But the reality is to think about the chair that you're sitting in, right? We have been called, we have been cleaned up, we have been given identity in Christ. But, but as our worship leader said, like there's so often, like there's this throne that we see and we want to place all these other things on this throne to bring us contentment, therefore putting our identity in things that are outside of Jesus. And what we're doing in that moment is simply running back to the chair. But the reality of the chair is that it's murderous, and it murders us, and it steals our life, and it drives our anxiety and our fear, and our, furthers our discontentment. And that's what happens whenever we worship creation instead of creator. And it's always costly because we begin to lose our focus and lose our identity. And when we remove the gospel from us, that we are in Christ, we share in union with him, we start to feel that discontentment, don't we? We start to feel that Jesus is insufficient. And then we want to start adding things to our life. And we start believing that Jesus is not enough, but he absolutely is. And one of the biggest mistakes that the church can make across the board is whenever we see new people come to faith in Jesus, and then we say, well, come join this program. And what we're saying is, well, let me program you. Because I want to make you in my image instead of the image of your son, instead of the image of the father. And so often, like, new people come to faith in Jesus, and, and what happens is we do that. We invite them into the church, and we try to program them or reprogram them. But the reality is, like, we need to leave them where they are, right? Like, we need to leave them in the culture in which they already exist. We need to teach them that their identity is in Jesus Christ, and it's going to cost them to stay there. But we need to let them just be where they are and live on mission right where they're at, right? Or do we think missional community was something else where we just meet in a house once a week? Like, that's what we're called to do is, is believe our identity and just function everywhere we eat, work, and play on mission. Like, it's our playground. And absolutely, it will be costly. And Paul is saying here, like, if we, um, uh, if we don't rightfully submit to our calling to be content in our identity with Jesus, it, it costs. And you might want to put some earmuffs on because it's about to get rated mature audiences only. And Paul starts talking about circumcision. All the guys are like, come on, bro. This early in the morning? Paul getting real personal here with us. And, and here's the deal. Like in and around the church of Corinth, um, 
They were both Jews and Gentiles. So Jews were believing in God, Yahweh, and Gentiles were kind of everyone else. And, and what would happen is these people would be converted to Christianity, and the Jewish Christians would tell the Gentiles, new Gentile Christians, well, you got to start doing some stuff. You got to eat some certain, certain things, you got to live out some certain rituals, and one of those would be circumcision. And so these Gentile Christians then would get circumcised. Like they, they, would, they would pull them out of their culture and they would get circumcised because trying to seek like a greater fulfillment in Christ, they would believe them and they would get circumcised. And then here's the crazy part. They would learn that they did not need to be circumcised. And still being discontent, they would reverse their circumcision. Yeah, exactly. What? Yeah. I brought some slides to show you what that, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Here's the deal. Here's what Paul's saying simply. Like, discontentment is costly. And these men would want to experience more, man, and they would go to great measures to experience more and more and more. And, and people regularly, I regularly forsake my comfort in Christ for the comfort of the world. And, and Paul simply reminds them, like, each one of you should remain in the situation in which you were called. Be content with where you are. Because discontentment can be costly, obviously. And so it's easy to say, Corey, you know, it's, you don't know my opportunities. You don't know how I was raised. You don't know what's been given to me or not given to me. How can you say some of these things? Of course I want to desire more. And who are you to come here in our house and tell us? And so I'm going to give you some background um, on me. I'm going to share some of my story with you just to um, let you in on how I can so wrap my mind around what it means to be discontent. Radically discontent, Pollock, excuse me. So my dad died of a cocaine overdose when I was seven. And my mom is still addicted to drugs. My brother is um, 6'5", 280 pound, outspoken atheist, barroom brawler. Okay, so I don't, um, there's not a lot of evangelism going on between us, if I may. And so my sister lives in a world where she thinks our family's perfect. <laughs> so figure that out. Growing up, though, wrap your mind around this, like both family addicts, I mean, both parents addicts, fathers passed away. I had six different stepdads growing up and a great deal of emotional abuse. Um, I started habitually partaking in, in, in drug abuse in fifth grade. I thought that that was pretty normal. This is just until about seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, my, my mom would leave me for days like weeks at a time with my sister, who was just six years older than I am, and she would be there to raise me. And, and all the while, like, I had no one to share this with. I would stay with my grandparents whenever my mom would go binge or go to jail or go back to rehab, and they would be so worried about me. Whenever they would send me home, I would just lie to them and say, yeah, my mom's home. I'm still in, like, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade during this time. But they were the only ones that ever actually cared about me. They showed me, tried to show me who Jesus was, but I just kind of pushed all that away. I would rebel. I would act out. I would regularly partake in drugs. Um, I would steal. And I would do this stuff, one, for the excitement, but two, because if I got caught, then at least I was being noticed by someone during that time. I would come home after school regularly, and my mom would still be passed out in her lunch from taking too many muscle relaxers, and my, mom, my friends and I, we would just sit there and make fun of her. And, and I can be a fairly funny guy, and so I would lead that herd while all the while dying on the inside from embarrassment and shame, right? So one of the greatest highlights, my wife loves these stories, and so one of the greatest highlights is during my birthday party. 
All my best friends were there wrestling. I don't even know why wrestling at the time, but I guess I was in. And all my best friends, all my family, and our neighbors are there. And my mom gets arrested for one of the biggest um, drug busts in our town of only 7,200 people, graduating class of 35. So you, I would say I was the talk of the town, right, and our family. The reality of my childhood is I don't have any good memories. I'm setting that. Like, I don't have any good memories growing up. And I've done a year of counseling. I have a wonderful gospel-centered wife who's sat and, and counseled me for five years. And she'll ask me, she's asked me before, just tell me something good. I'm like, I don't remember. And there's a lot of you in this room that are the same way. And maybe you have some good memories, and I can pluck a few every now and then, but you have been hurt, and you've been broken, and it's relational, and it's emotional, and maybe it's substance, and you're there with me, right? Like, I can see some of your eyes and your heads nodding. And the reality for us is that it's easy for me and, and for many of you to want to turn to anger and to want to turn to bitterness and frustration towards a mom or towards childhood. And it's easy um, for that to become my identity, right? Like, like it's easy for bitterness to be what makes me up and rage to the one. And I feel that, like, maybe you feel that. We're like, even talk about it now. Like, there's this thing in the pit of my stomach that's like, yes, like, be angry about that. Like, it's okay for you to be mad. It's okay for you not to process through. Just hold a grudge and be angry towards people. Like, even, I'm, I'm like confessing even now in this moment in your church, right? And so many of you are there with me, and it's easy for that to be our identity or for us to look at our kids or look at the things we have and say, well, this is owed to me because of my childhood. I'm going to go buy whatever I want. I'm going to spend God's money however I want. I'm going to raise my kids however I want. And I didn't have that sort of a thing, so I'm going to provide that thing for them. And no one's going to hold me accountable, and no one's going to pursue me. I'm going to step out of community, and my identity is in the things of the world and not in the person of Jesus Christ. And we just keep pushing forward in our identity continues to be consumed by worldly nonsense. And the result of that is that discontentment is costly. And if I were to step into your heart, I would see that you're dying under the weight of seeking creation to bring something that Jesus already provided in the gospel. And that's the absolute truth for you and for me. But the reality is that, 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 that there are days, yes, where we want to run back to that chair because we want that chair to be our identity. But Jesus Christ has called us out of that chair, cleaned us up, adopted us, right? And then presents us holy because his son is holy. So we don't have to work on our own accord to earn anything. And whenever we, the reality of the gospel is like whenever we want to run back to the chair, Jesus looks at us and says, what chair? The chair is gone in the cross. It no longer exists. Why are you trying to put something back on you that has been removed? In reference to circumcision being costly. The flesh is gone. And yet we keep trying to run back to it. And here's what we do have. Back to Philippians, Paul's in jail writing to the church of Philippi. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, like this is what I, this is what I cling to some days. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
So Paul's this recognition that yes, he's in prison, and yes, his imprisonment is actually to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. His imprisonment actually emboldens men and women to go share the gospel faithfully to see non-Christians become Christians. So in that, like you're not bound by your by what you think imprisons you. If you are in fact in Christ, what you think has, is imprisoning you has been put to death on the cross along with Jesus, and He's imputed His perfection onto you. Your experiences have not happened because there's this big, mean, nasty God that, that has it out for you. It's, your experiences happen regardless of what your, where your life is and what you're going through even now. Your experiences happen so that God might use you to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you are. And discontentment is so costly because it will lead you to look outside of the gospel, the truth of who you are in Jesus and it will cause you to look to something in the world that will only bring temporal satisfaction whenever eternal satisfaction has already been given to you. It's just this beautiful thing in the gospel of Jesus. And so with that in mind, right, like I look back over my past, and, and, and likewise, as Paul says to the church of Philippi, like I can't help but just be reminded and excited that my imprisonment is for the sake of Christ. Like the, the junk that I had to endure is for the sake of the gospel. And so even just a few weeks ago, this is awesome, we have a neighbor next door to us, where our, in, next to my wife and I's house. It's where one of our missional community gathers during the week. And um, there's a woman there that only knows three of us, my wife and the guy that used to live there that's now in our missional community that's now a deacon in the church, which is just bomb, right? And so praise God. And uh, I wanted to share that whole story. I don't have time. And um, just cool, story of redemption. Our new neighbor lives there now, though, and she knows three of us. And so she, come over, she comes over. She doesn't actually come in the yard. She just talks to us, like, over the fence. And she won't actually step into the yard. And we invite her all the time, like crazy. And, and so she calls all the time, and she'll ask me to check her house at night, you know, just to make sure there's no one looming. Her husband works midnights, and, and I will. And she saw on Facebook the other day um, that we were having a baptismal celebration. And so she called me. And, uh, and she's like, hey, Corey, she's never been to our church, right? Never been in my yard. And she's like, <laughs> that's not going to happen, right? And so, um, so she calls me the other day, and she's like, hey, I was looking at Facebook. And I was like, oh, yeah? <laughs> and uh, she's like, yeah, I see you're having a baptismal celebration. I was like, yeah, we are. She's like, I'd like to talk with you about baptism. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> I was like so shocked. And so she didn't, I would like the story to say she came and she got baptized, and by God willing, in due time. But we've had three, two conversations since then about baptism. What does it mean to believe the gospel? And here's what had led to that. We have shared history in our past. Like she had a very similar mom that I had and a very similar father that I had. And we, relate, we related in that way with our history, right? And so in light of that, right, I can't help but to look at the past, man, and look at the present and see that we might, maybe I'll get to share the gospel with this woman. She'll come to faith in Jesus. We'll get to dunk her. That'll be great. And, but really, I can't help but to look back and just say, worth it. Like, we're going to plant a church in the Metro East that you all are helping us plant. Because God has allowed us, many of us, to endure some of these things for the advancement of the gospel. Like, praise God. What a beautiful thing. No idea where I am in my notes. I'm just going to skip down here somewhere. Pick up here. Here's what we need to recognize as believers. Discontentment was so costly, it cost the life of King Jesus. Like, we just need to set in that. Like, God the Father looked with 
I would say righteous discontent on our sin. And with a righteous discontentment, murdered his son in our place. Like he looked at the world and said they were created for more. And because of the fall of man in Genesis 3, God the Father was radically discontent with the sin that existed to the point where he murders his son, sacrifices his son in our place. Let me just remind you of that. Like, like a son who surrendered his perfect kingdom so that he could come and dwell. You think he was pretty content, right, where, with, with where he was. Right? A son who, as we read in the scriptures, surrender his family, surrender all of his friends. They think he's a lunatic, right? And he, yet he gives them up. A son who surrenders his life that was perfect, like he walked in perfection in our place as our substitute so that he could grant us his kingdom for eternity, so that he could invite us into his family to dwell for eternity, and so he could ultimately give us life everlasting where we get to just live in joy to the glory of the Father for eternity. And so in this famous book, this uh, A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs goes a little deeper and he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to, delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. One more time. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's a beautiful picture of just being content with right where we are. The last point in the text is contentment is a command. Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. It's a little humorous here. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. The last point is very clear. You were bought with a price. And so in that, contentment is a command. It is a command that we grow and learn and understand what it means to be sanctified in the Lord. It's called progressive sanctification, progressively walking in the Spirit. And so while we, are not, we do not receive salvation based off works, we are still called to learn and to grow and understand what it means to be presented holy. So we don't work for our salvation. I would say we work from our salvation. And it should be a delight for us to walk in the Spirit of God and learn what it means to bear the image of the sun. Let me give you some points of application. I'm going to wrap it up since I promised I would be 20 minutes shorter than Pastor Justin. Heights Church, we do application every week, so here's what I got for you. To grow in contentment, you have to deal with deception. Like we have been deceived and we have bought the whole lot of discontentment. Let me give you five points of application and then we'll wrap it up. The first one is complain less and learn more. Complain less, learn more. If you're a note taker, stop complaining so much about where you are in life and actually learn how it might be bringing glory to God, how it might be an avenue in which you get to advance the gospel, how where you are in life might actually be a way in which God is using you to strengthen your brothers and sisters around you so they can proclaim the gospel more boldly. We have some best friends that have been trying for four years to have a baby and they've still not been able to have a baby and there's nothing wrong with them biologically perfect in all areas that need to be 
perfect. Let me tell you that they have strengthened my faith to a greater degree than most people in my life because of their love for their king. Four years they've been trying, and many of you are there, and so I'm not going to pastor you in that. I'll let your pastors pastor you. But just know that where you are might be, you might just be there because it strengthens the faith of your brothers and sisters sitting next to you. The second thing I would say is stop living in hypotheticals. Here's a hypothetical. What if you didn't live in hypotheticals? That would be awesome and freeing, right? What if you stopped with the would'ves, could'ves, and should'ves? What if you stopped looking backwards so often and, and, and regretting where and what you have done and, um, and self-condemning because of all the brokenness from your past that you think makes up your identity now and you actually just believe that your identity is in Jesus? Stop with the hypotheticals. Three, look forward instead of backwards, which will help you with stopping hypotheticals. What if you drove down 74 and instead of using the big, beautiful windshield that's been given to you, you tried to navigate using the rearview mirror? What would happen? Right? Like, you're going to crash. You're going to crash and burn. And Christianity is not about looking backward. It's about looking forward in eager anticipation for the coming king. Let's not be short-sighted. But rather, let's stand on our tiptoes in eager excitement for Jesus to come and bless us and completely consummate the marriage of the church. The fourth one I would say is don't stress about tomorrow. If you're stressed about tomorrow, then you're focusing on the wrong future. And you're finding your identity in the wrong things. Rather, joyfully look to the future because you have a king that's coming. Fifth thing I would say is rest. Um, I don't mean like sit at home and watch Netflix all day. (laughs) Bummer. I'm not talking about Call of Duty. I'm talking about rest. Like real, genuine, Sabbath rest. Because a lot of you have come in just like I would have come in here a few weeks ago. I'm going to share a story. And you have completely stopped delighting in God. No prayers. No spending time in the word. Sunday service is my jam. Missional community is once a week. That's who I am. And that's absolutely, we're wired for so much more. And so last week, I'm sorry, not last week, two weeks ago, I was with your pastor in Miami. It was a really hard life for us there. And it was terrible. I mean, and, and we were there and we had to set, and this pastor was leading us through some conversation. And he asked a very simple question. He said, where are you with Jesus? And I'm like, man, Jesus and me are boys, right? Like, Jesus is never your boy. He's Lord and Savior of all creation, okay? And so I'm like, well, we're tight. Like, my marriage is good. My kids are awesome. Our church is doing well financially. We're secure. Like, things are good with me and Jesus. And then I realized that everything in that was of the world. Like, everything I just mentioned was a gift that God had blessed me with and had nothing to do with the giver of that gift. And so I had to re-ask the question in my mind, like, where am I, Corey, personally, in my relationship with Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of all things? And I realized in that moment, it just ripped me open that it had been seven weeks since I had just read the Bible for myself. Well, you're a pastor, I know, right? Expectations are the same for both of us, though. I had not read, I had not prayed for my family, hadn't prayed for my kids, my wife, our church. I hadn't done anything for me. I had read scripture and books for meetings and read scripture and books for sermons and and prayed with people, but I had not done anything to um, help me to delight in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Seven weeks. And we were going through the membership process, and it was awesome. I mean, it was a beautiful time for our church, and I was just dying on the inside. 
I realized in that moment, just running myself ragged, finding my identity in the things of the world instead of my identity in the things of my creator, looking for contentment in the things of the world instead of contentment in Christ. So I'm right there with you. And this sermon's more for me than it is for some of you, to be honest. And you need rest. And rest flows from relationship, not from just sitting on your couch doing nothing. And so my prayer for you is that you would, you would learn to delight in the Lord, that your identity would be found in Christ, and you would stop seeking contentment in things of the world, but in your maker. Amen. Let me pray for you guys, and we'll continue with communion, I believe. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for allowing me to come here, to be here, to stand up here in your place, God, and be your mouthpiece. God, I love that, as Paul says, I don't have to come with eloquency. God, I don't have to come with flattery. The only calling I have is to share who you are. So for that, I give you praise. And for that, I confess, as I did earlier publicly, God, thank you for redeeming me, for, for directing me back to your son, for helping me fix my gaze upon you, God. I pray for the sacred city, that, God, that they would not be short-sighted, that they would delight in Jesus, and that it would come through resting in his word and resting in community, God. That's why missional community is so important, so we can exhort one another in love, so we can see new people come to faith, and even in that is a, a, obviously a means of grace by which we are and energized spiritually. I pray continued blessing over sacred. I pray, I pray for them as they're sending out Sam. God, as he goes into the trenches, I pray for his family. I pray for those men and women that would go with him. I pray, God, that for those that will not go but, but will provide resources, I pray that they would give lavishly, financially, and other material resources as well. I pray that you meet all their deepest needs. And I pray and give you praise, God, that you hold the church in your hands as your bride. We just simply get to partake. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.